Welcome to the One Rental at a Time podcast. This is your host, Michael Zuber. This is the show where we interview guests involved in the real estate business, from experts to newbies, wholesalers, flippers, buy and hold, apartments, commercial, notes, hard money, Airbnb, mobile homes. It doesn't matter. If you're involved in the business, we want to talk to you. This show relies on referrals and recommendations from our listeners. If you know someone we should talk to, please make a recommendation. As the author of One Rental at a Time, The Journey to Financial Freedom, I'm dedicated to helping you take your first or your next step on your real estate journey. But I need your help. We need to spread the message of One Rental at a Time Works. Please share this podcast, my YouTube channel, and of course, my book, all called One Rental at a Time. Thanks, and let's start the show. Hey everyone, I got a great show for you today. Uh, I have someone in the business who's doing really, really big things and, and enjoys giving back. Uh, with me today, I have Tucker Merrihue with me. How are you doing today, Tucker? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, excellent. Thank you for uh, accepting the invitation from some guy you didn't really know. So uh, I always appreciate that. I know we check each other out. Uh, so I appreciate it when, when you say yes and you're willing to give back. That, that means a lot. Hey, I've got a podcast too, and I've asked a lot of people that I don't know at all to give time. So I know how, I know what it's like to be on the other side of the coin. So I always try and be as nice and giving as I can when people ask me. So and you you were very gracious. So I appreciate that. Let's just jump right in. You are doing so many things. Uh, we always start these interviews with going. What's keeping Tucker busy today? And it seems like I think you found a way to stretch the day because you have a lot going on. You want to want to where do you want to start? I tell you, you know. This has been a, a year for me where I've really tried to figure out how to do it all effectively. But yes, there's, there's, we got a lot of irons in the fire. Maybe too many. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how the year ends up, right? Uh, you know, the, as an entrepreneur and as a real estate investor, we always try and do as much as we can. Sometimes we can get it all done. Sometimes we can't. But we've got a lot of things that are keeping me busy right now. So our, our number one thing is our actual sticks and bricks real estate company, which is called TTM Development Company. And so Within that, um, we do a lot of higher end renovations, um, high dollar new builds. We do some lower end renovations too, and a little bit of wholesaling. Um, but our bread and butter at this point is kind of higher end product, um, just because we've kind of grown over the last 10 plus years of renovating and building homes. And so you gradually, you know, you gravitate to higher profit margins, which higher profit margins come with higher price points. And so as our skill sets have grown and our ability to put out that high-end product has grown, um, that's just kind of where we've uh, you know, graduated to. And uh, Portland is fortunately now has a high enough high-end market that um, you know, it's, it's available to us. In some markets, it's just not, right? I mean, you cap out 400000 500000 that's just what it is. In Portland here, you know, we're, it's all over the map as far as price points, but we build uh, and remodel stuff predominantly in an area called Lake Oswego where entry-level new construction is probably a million one, right? So, wow. so that's, our, that's our bread and butter. Um, you know, most of our lead flow, or virtually all of it, is direct-to-seller. So we deploy a lot of direct-to-seller marketing in order to get the phones to ring. In my office right next door right now, you probably heard the phone ring. I disconnected so it wouldn't bother our call here. But uh, Chris sits in the office next to me. He's been my, we'll call him office manager, leads manager, whatever you want to call it. He does kind of everything as far as talking to people when they call. And um, he's talking to somebody right now. But we deploy a lot of marketing, mainly direct mail, um, and then a variety of other kind of layering 
techniques to kind of get people to pick up the phone, give us a call, and then we start a conversation with them. And that's usually how we ultimately end up buying a lot of the um, properties that we either renovate or redevelop and build new. Uh, that's awesome. So a lot to unpack there. Um, so you talked about where you're kind of focusing, where the market's kind of 1.1 kind of new builds. How big is that market? Is Are we talking thousands of homes, tens of thousands? You know, how big is, um, I think you said it was Lake Oswego, if I said it right? Yeah, Lake Oswego. I think there's about 30,000 people in Lake Oswego. Um, so it's a suburb of Portland. It's basically... Uh, you go south of Portland, you run into an area called Dunthorpe, which is where we're filming um, kind of that content that we're putting out called Million Dollar Builds, which is the most expensive part of all of Portland. And yeah. then right abutting that is a town or a city called Lake Oswego. And so it's big enough. It's got two high schools. It, uh, you know, geographically, it spans a decent um, amount of area. There's different pockets throughout it. I mean, it's almost like its own little city, but it's it's got the best schools um, in the state. It's the most desirable. It's, you know, no crime or very little. Right. Um, it's just, it's a nice place to live, right? And so, ironically, when I was a kid, I kind of grew up on the other side of the track, so I hated Lake Oswego. <laughs> now I live there and I do this. So, you know, I'm one of those. I wasn't born and bred. I just, I live there now. We built house there, but that's, um, <laughs> that's where we focus most of our, our efforts, but yeah, it's overall it's higher end, but I'd say, you know, entry level price point for Lake Oswego on existing construction, you're looking at at least 500 grand. Um, and then entry level price point for new construction is probably a million, million one. And then right. it goes up from there. You know, you've got houses on the lake selling for 12, 13, $15 million. So it varies quite a bit. Um, you know, Phil Knight, uh, the guy who started Nike, he lives, you know, on an Island on the lake, um, you know, a variety of other types. Um, you know, Damien Lord plays with Blazers. He lives in Lake Oswego, a bunch of other Blazers do too. It's, it's like the, the nice place to live. So we, I live there. Um, we've renovated houses there. We've built houses there for many years. And so that's kind of the focal point of where we want to be now, just because we know that market so well, it's big enough and diverse enough that we can renovate homes there too. There's different pockets. We market everywhere, but that's our main focus. So um, yeah, we're actually closing one tomorrow that's in, we'll call it a quote unquote affordable part of Lake Oswego. <laughs> and uh, we'll f fully renovate it. It'll probably come out at about five ninety nine, six hundred thousand. 600,000. So um, that, and that would be considered quote unquote affordable. So. Okay. So, you know, I'm really curious because, you know, when you see, uh, you know, direct to sellers and wholesaling, all of that, most of the stuff that you hear and see, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, is, is, is going to, I don't know, call it sub 200, you know, lots of sub 100K houses, right? Trying to get to those kind of sellers that have to get out for life events. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that you're finding, you know, marketing to sellers of, I'll call it half a million dollar homes, equally open to that idea of, you know, you, some people might think, hey, they own a half a million dollar home, quote unquote, they're sophisticated, you know, whatever. Uh, but obviously that's a incorrect assumption. True. Yeah, very much so. Uh, but I don't, so there's a big, I guess we'll call I won't call it stigma, but like in our business, people label sellers as quote unquote motivated sellers. Right. Right. When you're marketing in the sub 200, sub $100,000 um, price points, which you can't buy a cardboard box in Portland for under a hundred grand, but there are, you know, Midwest markets, you can buy tons of houses for that and under. Um, when you market to people in the lower price points, there is generally more distress financially, right? Like they have life events, they don't have as much savings. There's right. more of those types of issues. 
when you market in the higher price points, there is still some of that issues. I mean, people are living a little over leveraged or still living, you know, a little bit of savings, but generally speaking, they have trust set up, they have more savings, they have more assets. And so instead of looking for quote unquote motivated sellers, we're looking for quote unquote reasonable sellers. So just people that are reasonable about what the value of their asset is in its current condition, right? And so if it's in an area of Lake Oswego that's prime for redevelopment, as long as they're reasonable about the value of the land being that the dirt now is worth more than the house, then we have a deal, right? So we're just looking for reasonable sellers. We're not looking for quote unquote motivated sellers. Now they, they do happen in the higher price points, not as much as in the lower price points, but we're, again, we're just looking for reasonable. So like the one we're closing tomorrow, it was mom's house. She lived there forever. She's moving to assisted care, homes in a trust. A uh, 50-year-old loser brother never left home, lived with mom. He finally got him to go find another place to live. But they're just selling the home to pay for the assisted care and mom's right. next chapter. There's no real distress there other than the house was built in 67. It hasn't been touched since 67, right? So it needs everything in terms of surfaces and some updates, and it's pretty ugly from the curb. But that's what we're looking for. And he's just a reasonable guy. And he said, you know what? I get it. The house probably needs 100 grand worth of updating and work. So yes, I agree to your price. And so that's generally what we look for in those higher price points, that type of seller. That makes sense. I love that idea of reasonable seller, right? Because um, we both know that in, in various markets, especially the one I think we just left, uh, it'd be interesting to th see if you think Portland is there, right? Where I live, kind of the Silicon Valley, um, the seller's market's clearly over, right? Listings are up, uh, price cuts are up you know, as far as, as percentage of, of listings and um, some sellers aren't reasonable. Right. And they still have like last June's price in mind. Um, I guess I'm curious in Portland are, are you seeing the same kind of transition from a, a no question sellers market to I'm not sure what's going on market. Yeah. I think last year we hit the kind of a reset button. We'll call it. Um, we tracked numbers internally and we kind of guesstimated about a 10% adjustment from last uh we'll call it like march april 2018 to november december 2018 yeah. there was about a 10 percent adjustment in realistic what you're going to sell your house for prices right now there were still people out there that were unrealistic in terms of what their house is going to sell for and that then created a little bit more inventory that just kind of stuck on the market mm -hmm. but there was a window there where we had our about 10 percent shift not a entirely across the board, but in general, 10% shift in pricing um, through that window. And so we had, we had a couple projects that we were building through that time period. And we're, as we exit them, we're going to exit them with less profit than we originally, well, we had hoped for at one point, but that's just kind of the way it goes. But we right. saw that window kind of, you know, come down, so to speak, um, in terms of value about 10%. We saw that last year. What happens this year? Um, I don't know, but it gave back and it seemed like a floor's come back under the market. It started to absorb the inventory. Um, and so I think we, we kind of hit that, I don't want to call it a dead cat bounce, but we hit that kind of inflection point where, all right, we got a little over our skis in terms of aggressive valuations. This is where it should be the market's absorbing product here back at this price point or these price points. And that's, that's what we're seeing here now. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, you know, one of the things you just sort of hinted at there is, is you're in the market all the time. So you can see these things coming, right? That's one of the important things that I tell people, right? If you're buying, sell, flipper, you know, doing these high end stuff is you got to stay in the market and always be engaged. Even if you don't have money, you need to stay engaged so you can see the pulse, the rhythm of the market. Um, so you don't get blindsided by an air pocket, a dead cat bounce, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, buy wrong, right? Because we both know you make your money when you buy. 
Um, not, not when you sell. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's a phrase that I didn't understand for a long time. <laughs> but uh, once you get that, this business makes a lot more sense to you. That's for sure. Yeah, the cash shows up when you sell. I get that, but yeah, you 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 you've locked in your profit the day you bought it, and and until you do a few, it, you don't really realize it. So yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. So I am curious. Um, was it just a natural evolution for you to work your way up a price point? It doesn't sound like you started in the million dollar you know kind of area or half a million dollars. Did you start like lots of people below that and just worked up, or how'd that transition start and, and evolve? Yeah. I mean, think about it. It's like climbing. I always say like climbing the real estate ladder, right? Like we started renovating hood houses. I mean, that's basically what it was. And I mean, back then when I say hood houses, North Portland, we were buying them for 120. We were selling them for 199. We were putting 20 to 30 grand into them in between. Right. And we were just doing one after another, after another. And the neighborhoods were questionable and the end products were decent. Um, but we just, you know, we started there and then we grew to the three to $400,000 price range. And then we did one that we exited at 760. And, um, that was our first kind of like high dollar one. I think that was like 2010. And I was like, Jesus, 760. That's a, that's, that's a, big a big number, number. in 2010 <laughs> in Portland. Um, but we sold it in an hour and we sold it for cash. Oh and my gosh. It was a real eye opener because we were still kind of in that weird time with real estate where not everybody was into the idea of buying it. Right. Because we had just come kind of post real estate apocalypse. Yeah. We we're only two years removed. Yeah. And, 2010. Um, wow. That was. Oof. Yeah. So, so we okay. sold that in about uh, less than a day. Really. We had it put it on the market. We had a cash offer full price with like a 10 day close for 760,000 within you know the end of the day. And that really opened my eyes. Um, number one, well, first of all, it was kind of our growth process to get there in terms of being able to put out a product at a higher price point because we had done a lot up to that point. But then I also realized that even in a down market, people that have money still buy what they want. They may yes. just buy it for slightly less. Yes. And so, um, you know, we just kind of kept climbing the ladder from there. Eventually we got into new construction and we realized that new construction is a hell of a lot easier than doing big remodels. Um, mm. And so that's why we just kind of kept going in that direction. And we do both, um, but new construction is way more of a conveyor belt type operation. It's way more predictable in terms of costs. Um, you know, if you get into big remodels and like add-ons and second story, I mean, I won't even do like second story stuff anymore or add-ons because yeah. it's like, honestly, it's just, it's a lot of brain damage. It really is. And you can make money, you can make a lot of money, but it's so much easier to just start new and do new construction. And a lot of investors kind of, they feel like they don't, for whatever reason, they just don't want to venture into that realm. They're scared of, you know, creating the plans, maybe the excavation, the foundation work, the site prep, the utilities, whatever it is, right? That they, there's kind of a blind spot in their understanding. And so they don't go there. And so they keep doing these big remodels. But then once they do, if they do make it over the bridge. They realize that, okay, this is a hell of a lot easier and it's yeah. just a lot less stressful because you can schedule everything. You know what things should cost. Um, it just, it flows better. There aren't continual problems and retrofitting. Like, I mean, there's still problems and challenges, but it's just, it's a lot more manageable and um, it's a lot more of a streamlined process. Yeah. So I'm curious about two more things that we sort of unwrap what you're doing today. Um, is it fair to say you're doing less volume? Right. Maybe you're doing more absolute dollars and more profit. But I mean, when you're doing hood houses, were you like doing, you know, 50 a year and now you're doing 10 or? Yeah, we, we, we took the volume way down um, for sure. Because, you know, we went from 
making 30 to 40 grand a house to three to 400 grand a house, right? right? So it just, it, you know, we don't make three to 400 grand on every house, but you yeah. get what I'm saying. Like we took, there's certain ones, we've got one right now that we're doing that we may make a million bucks on it this year, you know, if the market stays decent. Um, right. But that, it took a lot of hood houses at 30 grand a year to get to that volume, you know, right. and I just, I don't want to run that machine anymore. I've, you know, I see a lot of people out there that are running that machine and my opinion on it is great do it. You get a lot of experience. You'll learn exactly what you don't want to do forever, which is run yeah. machine. because it's, it, it takes a lot out of you. And, um, you can, even if you're just managing it, yeah. you know, you still have overhead responsibilities, people, um, it's a machine. And at a certain point it becomes a Titanic. If you just remove yourself completely and you have all these pieces in play that are doing it for you and it can be hard to turn the Titanic. Um, mm -hmm. and so, I, I don't want to be the Titanic. I, I've been there, you know, not like huge, huge volume, but big volume. Um, and we just, it's not, high, it's not my best life, we'll call it. So I, it's just not what I wanted to do. So we graduated to a place where we can do less product, higher profit margin. And it's kind of, it's the way I want to do the business. Um, right. And so that, that's where we've landed. Uh, and, and frankly, I've, I've interviewed a couple of guests that have built impressive, you know, you know, seven, eight figure businesses. And most of them, I can't think of any that haven't, but most of them did exactly that. They sort of got the machine going, realized that the machine can kill you, frankly, right? It is a lot of overhead, a lot of expenses. You, you may start marginalizing deals and getting skinny and taking extra risks because risks, you got to feed that thing. And all of them at some point said, you know what? You know, I don't want to be in that business. I'm going to go up or I'm going to go out and um, you know, simplify my life. So the last question about this, this kind of business for you is, did your team swell as far as direct, you know, employees and now it's kind of a tight group or all 1099 general contractors or you have that in-house or how does that kind of work for you at that level? Um, the team swelled a little bit when we did more volume in terms of uh, on-site laborers mm. um, because when you do more rehabs, you have a lot more in-between labor. So I, I, we carried a lot more labor, um, but that was the only factor. Everything else has stayed the same. Okay. So, you know, I didn't, and some people do this and it's not a knock, but it's just they have a lot of office staff, right? They've got leads managers. They've got, mm -hmm. you know, people that go out and see the properties. They have all this. I condense that into one person. Okay. And so that's, we haven't swelled beyond that so that we're not expanding and contracting. We've literally stayed the same for eight years now going on, you know, with that type of setup. And so the only place that we've expanded, contracted is in our labor in the field. Um, the rest of it, I feel you know, if we're going to run this type of business, and even if we are running a little higher volume, we don't need more than that in the office itself. We just need to be very effective um, with the time that we're here and the follow-up that we do do with the leads that we have, so. Right, and do you, I guess now that you've experienced both sides, we'll just call it hood houses in, in, in the upper end. Have you noticed any different in the sellers that you talk to, right? Meaning, um, you know, you would think one's more sophisticated than the other, but maybe that's not true. You know, again, maybe they're all, you know, mom's house, right? Like you said, she's going assisted living. That's kind of an easy conversation. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is it, is it much, is it much different? A little bit from time to time, but, uh, you know, um, I mean, just kind of to show the disparity here, like we bought a piece of dirt that had three houses on it from a guy that's probably worth $30 million here in Portland, which is a lot of money. And he right. lived right next door. And, um, you know, he wore duct 
taped uh, Velcro shoes and had this really silly laugh where he'd go, <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you didn't know that he was worth $30 million and he started a company here that he sold out for big money, you'd probably think that you were buying a hood house room, you know? So right. I, I don't know. Some people, yes, are more sophisticated and just more put together. Some people are not. They just, it's the same, right? And I mean, people are pretty much the same. The only thing that it differs is whether or not there's some type of financial, you know, struggle that's driving the sale or whether or not it's um, the house itself just needs to work that's driving the sale. And so that, that really is what the difference in conversation is. Now we've seen a lot of crazy stuff and we've been in some, you know, <laughs> houses and talked to some people that are out of their damn minds. Um, but generally speaking, we'll find those people and we'll call it the more entry level neighborhoods. Got it. I guess the last question about the business today, I, are you doing, is it like half a dozen, a dozen big projects? Cause I'm, I'm envisioning lots of capital being at least tied up, if not fully committed. Yeah, um, we, we do about a dozen um, yeah, a year, okay. but yeah, we're talking, you know, we're pushing, uh, let's see, f about $5 million around um, continually in right. terms of, you know, capital. And then we'll pull outside money on top of that, but we've got about 5 million in private funds that is constantly in motion um, sure, sure. that I'm essentially fund managing, right? That, that's really what it comes down to. At the end of the day, you know, at a certain point, that's what you become in this business. You yes. You're essentially a fund manager. Our product is just real estate. It's not stocks and bonds. So no, totally agree. So let, let's rewind the clock, right? You know, how'd this all start for you, right? Even before hood houses, what, what, what did you do when you got started? What were you doing before this? You know, what excited you about it? Do, do you remember? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I originally got into the mortgage side of the business. Mm. Um, so when I left college, I didn't have a job. It was 2002 and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had started a clothing company while I was in college. So I was kind of entrepreneurial then. Sure. Um, we'd gotten into a few retail stores and we didn't actually make any money. We lost every dollar at the end of the day, but it kind of, I don't know. I just always had to drive for that. So I ended up taking a job with a mortgage company. The mortgage company basically was straight commission. They train you, they turn you loose, right? That was the model back in the day. I've got yep. stories for days on that company. We'll leave that for another time. But, um, you know, the point is, is that from day one, like I never left college and took a job where I was paid hourly. It was always straight commission. So essentially, I've, I've never not been self-employed. And right. so that job, um, you know, with the mortgage company, which was a hundred percent commission job where I was a loan officer that then turned into me opening my own mortgage company, you know, three and wow. a half years later, um, that then turned into me starting the development company into the end of 2008. Um, and then here we are today. So I've always been on the entrepreneurial side of the tracks, um, you know, since I entered into quote unquote adulthood. Um, I've never had a, a job. I mean, the last job that I had that actually paid me hourly was when I delivered Chinese food when I was in college. So that was, that was it. Um, and so I've lived this other life, which, you know, there's, there's really two ways to live a life. There's one where you account or you count on a paycheck for hours swapped for dollars, right. Or, yep. or something that's guaranteed, right. There's that path. And then there's the path where nothing's guaranteed. I've been on the path where nothing's guaranteed since I left school. So, um, 
you know, it's just kind of where I exist. It's, it's where I'm comfortable. A lot of people are completely uncomfortable in that world. And that's why they're scared to death to go to it. I mean, quite frankly. Um, but I've never really known any different in my adult life. And so to me, it seems normal. I, I wouldn't, I don't think that I could ever, even if I failed miserably and we crashed and burned and the market went to shit, whatever, you know, I'd probably come up with some other idea that, you know, was <laughs> entrepreneurial and that would be the next business just because I've been on this side of the tracks for so long. Eventually you can never go back, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's an amazing story. And I think more and more people need to, need to believe it's possible, right? I think we both see out there lots of people kind of have the want, maybe even the desire, but you're right. They're scared, right? They've maybe been raised in an environment where it's go to school, get a good job, make a lot of money. And that was quote unquote success. But you're a perfect example that there is an entirely different track. And I'm the first one to admit, I didn't know that track existed. I did not know what you were doing very successfully existed. Nobody in my family has ever been an entrepreneur. They've all just been employees forever, as long as the, you know, the history of my family. And um, more and more people need to see that the other track is there. Cause I think, um, you know, it's, it, it just needs to be, it needs to be out there. Would you agree? I agree. On the flip side though, I will say this because I've seen, I had one entrepreneur in my family, which kind of, I think pushed me in this direction, which was my grandfather. And I I've seen both sides of the entrepreneurial coin though. Right. So you have, the be- I guess let's, let's say it this way. The beauty of real estate is this. When, when you have another business and you're an entrepreneur and you give everything to that business your whole life and then ultimately you hope to exit it someday and get a paid, big paycheck, right? Sell right. the business. You're left with what? Nothing. Generally, entrepreneurs start dying that next day because they right. don't. their business is gone. Their baby is gone. It defined them. It's who they were their whole life. The beauty of real estate and why I love it as an entrepreneurial venture is because you never have to stop. Right. Right. You can just kind of dial it back. You can change your lifestyle. You don't have to shove it off and have nothing that next day. You might have a good payday, but then you're bored as hell and you just start dying that next day. With real estate, you can kind of change your investing approaches. You can dial back the number of projects you do, the types of projects you do, but you can stay involved. You can stay engaged because I think ultimately that's super important for entrepreneurs long-term as we get older, because, you know, if you're an entrepreneur your whole life and then you sell out your company or you're asked to step down or whatever, and you've got nothing going on, you're going to start dying. And so that's why I love real estate a lot because you can change and you can morph what that real estate business looks like as you continue to grow as a person. And as you get older. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, you know, one of the things I, uh, I share and you'll see in the book is I went into real estate investing while I had a crazy full-time job, right? So I invested as a buy and hold landlord, right? Bought a lot of stuff out of the MLS because it cash flowed and just held for the long term, kind of boring stuff. But I stayed in it for 15 years buying one rental at a time. And ultimately, you know, after time goes by, you know, inflation, rents, you know, appreciation, financially free, right? So you can even get into real estate while you do your crazy daytime job and then be out, in my case, mid 40s, and, you know, hopefully I got 45 years left where all I'm going to do is real estate, right? Right. So it's something you don't have to go in full-time. It's obviously great. You can build a company like TTM Development and, and all of that. But if you have a full-time job, right, I interviewed uh, a dentist or an orthodontist a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, you know, I trade my hours for, you know, big money. But it's still trading hours for big money, right, or, or, or salary. And he's like, real estate's what's going to, you know, fund his, you know, when he's done. So um, you can be a full-time employee and do this. Or you can just go full-time as you've done. So. Uh, it, it's pretty spectacular in that way. Um, I'd like to talk about, I always like to talk about the first deal. Do you remember the first one? Sort of give us how you found it, how it went through. Did, did it, you know, sometimes they don't end well, but maybe yours did. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a few. I mean, I guess the first deal that I ever bought was probably the one that I lived in. 
Okay. Um, so, you know, bigger pockets is dubbed it house hacking, right? Like yeah. that's essentially the new phrase for it. Back then it was just called buying it, renting out rooms to your buddies and <laughs> yeah. helping pay the mortgage, right? Yeah, so exactly. that's, that was kind of the first one. Um, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I was three months into the mortgage game and there were 100% financing was everywhere. And yeah. the market where the market was at that time was on my side because it had yet to balloon yet those crazy financing options were out there. So it was just fortuitous, lucky timing, but you know, sometimes fortune favors the bold, you take action and good things work out sometimes yeah. not so much, but this time it did. So I found this house, the guy's name that I bought it from strangest name to date that I bought a house from his name was Franco Ferrua and he was a strange character. And, um, he had a, uh, it was basically a FISBO and he had a FISBO sign in the yard I got the balls to walk up to the door and go knock on it and ask him. Um, it happened to be in Lake Oswego, first house I ever bought. Huh. Uh, going on, what, it was 2003, so whatever, 16 years ago now, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I went in, knocked on the door, talked to him. He was nice enough, let me in. And I, you know, at that point, started to get comfortable. We went and sat in the living room. We started talking about, you know, what he wanted for it, this and that. And he had a tanning bed in the living room and he had to, he propped it up and he turned it on and it was like super bright, like kind of like my lights terrible here, but it was like, bam, like right in my face. <laughs> and then he started proceeding to tell me about how he had seasonal depression syndrome because it rained so much here uh... and he needed to get the hell out of here and move to California. And then I just, I started to get, you know, why people sell things at a discount or want to sell them quickly or why there's motivation and yeah, end of the day, I think I ended up buying the house for about 240000 if memory serves. Um, I lived there for two and a half years, rented out. Uh, I finished out a bedroom in the basement, rented that out, rented out a main four bedroom, lived in the top bedroom, and I sold it about two and a half years later and made about two hundred grand um, tax free. And so that was kind of the initial deal that really it was just a FISBO. Yep. I don't think I bought it at a tremendous deal um, at the time compared to what market value was. Um, I, it was a decent deal, but it wasn't like extremely under market, probably like some of the rentals that you bought over time. They just, yeah. you know, they were probably they were. decent. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the market ballooned and that was 2003 by the time 2006 rolled around, you know, prices had almost doubled. Yep. Um, and so I pulled the cord and said, you know what, it's time to take some winnings. And so sold it. And, um, you know, to this day, I'm still glad that I sold it cause it was kind of a weird house. It was on a busy intersection it would have been challenging to sell that house in any type of a normal market right. um, at, a, at a top dollar. So I got a little bit lucky. I sold it, made quite a bit of money. And then that was kind of my seed money to kind of continue to grow, not only my mortgage company, but then kind of feed the development operation initially and give some capital for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, that kind of started everything really. Yeah. And so let's just clear up the tax-free comment. And it, it was tax-free because it was owner-occupied below the 250K limit, you know, all of that stuff, right? Government gives you that, correct? Yep. It was my owner occupied residence. And, um, so you can get up to, if you live there for two out of the last five years, you get up to 250 grand tax free yep. as an individual. I just happened to have employed that same strategy five times now since then, <laughs> including that over the course of my you know life now. And so the house that I live in now is basically a culmination of doing that four previous times, um, to nice. roll a lot of that money into paying for the house that I now live in today. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a great tax loophole. I mean, you know, honestly, you do the best form of real estate investing, which is rental property investing, because your tax liability is much lower. And if you have some active income that you interject into your mm -hmm. business, you have all of this paper losses that you can offset it with, which is ultimately where we all want to get to. So don't get me wrong. I, I pay way too much taxes. I have a few rentals, but we all need to get to the point where we own enough long-term real estate assets that we're not paying any taxes. But 
the caveat to that, for those of us that aren't quite smart enough to figure that out <laughs> totally like you have along the way, is that we can utilize the personal residence uh, tax exclusion, which is basically live there for two uh, two years and then you can sell it and make up 250 grand. Or if you're married, you can make up to 500 grand. Yeah. So the last one I lived in, I just did the cost uh, analysis sheet for taxes and whatnot, and we cleared about 480,000. So I got to spread it over both myself and my wife, but 480,000 tax-free is, you know, that that's basically making a million dollars of active income in any given year. So. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a loophole that um, more people should look at, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, and as far as, you know, being a landlord, owning a bunch of units, it is a really nice thing, because I walk into any year knowing that I have between three and $350,000 in depreciation losses, uh, that I get to shelter via active income. So that's, that's, uh, that's a nice way to begin. So, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't, they don't get the power of that. They really don't. Um, until they start paying 50% in taxes and then they start <laughs> looking around and talking to people like you and saying, how do I not do this? And, <laughs> you know. I need some more of that stuff. That's really yeah. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, th that's a good, that's a good sort of, you know, let's go there. So three to five years out, you know, what does that look like for you? Do you have more rentals and you can shield more of this? Cause you're clearly, uh, you know, running your game, running your route. You've got the machine. You're you're controlling risk. You got the capital. Now it's about, you know, what do you do next? Right, three to five years. You're just doing the same thing, or what? What happens? I think we're we're going to pivot. Um, this year we're going to kind of clear the deck in terms of projects that we have on the board that are we'll call them high dollar, high margin, um, active income type projects. And then once we clear the deck on this, I think we're going to pivot a little bit. Um, there's a 20 unit apartment complex that I'm in talks with the guy right now that, um, we're looking to potentially purchase. Um, he hasn't upped rent since 2001. He hasn't done any capital improvements since 2001. So there's, yeah. there's that. I think we're going to go into the existing construction market. Um, because new construction multifamily is just, it's so expensive to build yeah. that it forces us into high end rents. And so we're going to, probably pivot the same machine that we use to generate great leads on a single family level and generate those leads on an existing construction multifamily level. And so that will be our pivot um, as we, once we clear the deck capital wise this year and we kind of complete some of the uh, more active, you know, single family projects that we've got on the table. Yeah. And I think, I think you're going to be wildly successful in, in um, going in with what you have skill wise, negotiation, lead flow, all of that to that market you're going to find that it is much better to buy apartments built a couple of decades ago and then go, you know, go after those, especially if they haven't raised rent since 2001, right? Because apartment buildings are based on cap rates and, you know, you've just get this huge artificial gain by adding value and, 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 you know, all the stuff that you know, but um, it is a nice place to play. Do you think you're going to reposition and sell or is that going to be the time where you just add units and add units or what does that look like you think probably i mean we've we flipped a smaller complex last year um made a couple hundred grand doing it um but i think that we're probably gonna we may flip some smaller ones you know two three fourplexes but then we'll keep um the bigger stuff that way i can kind of take some of that um you know accelerated depreciation and just kind of the yeah. ongoing um bigger swacks of depreciation in one project as opposed yeah. to a culmination of many um you know i i've got a, a handful of single family rentals that all eventually 1031 into something like that i'm just kind of waiting for that time yeah. um but i you know i i've got a few of them that i've had around since pre real estate, you know, boom bust that, um, they just kind of hang out and whatever, you know, but I haven't been actively adding to that portfolio for the last couple of years. So I wish, 
if I had more financial capacity back in 2010, I definitely, and a little more foresight, I would have. Um, but yeah. you know, hindsight. Okay. Yeah. The 1031 exchange is something that fundamentally changed our lives, right? I started in 03. We bought houses th through 08 and just couldn't buy anything else. Or maybe it was seven, right? The, right before the, the bust happened, um, cause we couldn't buy anything else. We did 1031 exchanges. We went from eight doors cause I think it was seven or six houses in a duplex to 80 via the 1031 exchange. And, you know, obviously we kept all the equity that was fake and all that stuff, but uh, that's what fundamentally changed our lives was that 1031 exchange. So um, good stuff it's coming a, for you. Yeah. It's a fantastic tool. Most people, you know, never experience it or know little about it, but um, you know, that and the primary residence tax exclusion, those two things. And of course, Accelerated depreciation is always nice as well, but uh, depending on how much active income you have in any given year. But, um, you know, those are the things that really make real estate great. Um, you know, the rest of it is just, you know, you got to grind out the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Tucker, this has been a lot of fun for me. I always turn over the show to the guest. Uh, you know, anything you'd like to share, please talk about your podcast. Uh, you know, if you're looking for, you know, more private capital or whatever it is you're looking for, this is your time. Uh, I would say you can check out my show. It's called The Real Deals Podcast. Um, we're going on year five of production. So we've put a lot of time and a lot of episodes. I think we're 250 episodes in um, plus at this point. So many years on the microphone. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, so I, I'd suggest people go check that out if you want to hear more from me. Uh, the other thing that we have is um, we have built a technology called the Driving for Dollars app, which is trademarked as well. It's in the App Store. It's in the Google Play Store. And it's basically skip tracing in the palm of your hand. So you're able to essentially um, pick out any property anywhere in the country, create a list of properties or a single one, and then run a skip trace on it where you basically get uh, who they are, where they live, uh, skip trace quality data in terms of their address, their phone numbers, landlines, cell lines, email address, IP address a number of uh, data points about the person themselves and the property. So it's basically skip tracing in the palm of your hand, but you can do it while building custom lists in custom areas. And we use it every week in our own business. And um, that's originally why we built it, but <laughs> it costs the same to build it for us as it did for the whole world. So we decided, well, we might as well make a buck with this, or at least try to make a buck with this thing. If we're going to spend this much money and this much brain damage trying to build apps. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we have. And so, well, you know, you guys, if you want to use it, you get to be the benefactor of uh, all of the, our, money spent and all of our brain damage in uh, entering into the tech world and doing all that. Um, but it's a fantastic tool and we use it every week in our own business. Yeah, I would, uh, I would tell you if you're, if you're in this business driving for dollars, all of that, go to the app store, secure that because that's the hardest thing is, is getting to the sellers, figure out who they are. They don't just sit in their lawn chair, sip an iced tea. You've got to go find them, right? Finding the asset, the house or the duplex or whatever is part one of a 10 part process. So having an app like that, that's going to give you all the details and phone numbers and whatnot, and just pick up the phone and call them, right? Um, I could tell you that mailers were a big deal, right? I own a bunch of stuff and I used to get three or four. Now I get sometimes 50 a week. Pick up the phone and call people, right? If you have an app that gives you a phone number, just hit dial, see what happens. So um, great. Yeah, it gives phone numbers. It gives uh, email addresses. Hell, you can even load crazy uh, custom Facebook ads into Facebook to run to the profiles that match on the email addresses that say, Hey, I saw your property in whatever neighborhood. Right. And you'd probably get somebody's attention, you know, yeah, you, so probably you, would. you can do all kinds of stuff, but you know, the mailer on the mailer side too, um, mailers do work and you yes. just have to be a little more creative. And um, you know, for example, that 20 unit that we were talking about, I'm sure that guy gets mail all the time, but he con uh, called me uh, because we send out some crazy stuff to get people's attention. So it's just, you know, whether you're calling or whether you're mailing, it's just, 
you know, you got to think of like pattern interrupt, right? Like what yep. would get somebody's attention? What would get your attention as a real estate professional to actually take time out of your day to call me, right? Yeah. And so that, that's how we think about marketing and that's how we, you know, deploy all the marketing that we do. Yeah. And if anybody took my comment as mailers as being negative, I was simply highlighting that you've got to be different. Pattern interrupt. I like that. Because again, if I went from getting three or four to 50, you've got to be the one that, you know, catches my attention somehow, some way. So think about it yeah. that way. That's pretty awesome. On the downside, because people get so many, we don't get nearly as many angry calls to record and play on our podcast anymore. So people's, <laughs> people's anger levels has been watered down quite a bit with all the mail that they get. Back in the day, it was like we were the only people mailing them and they would get pissed <laughs> off. Uh, but now we don't get quite as many. So we don't have as much content to put out there. For- Oh, that's so funny. You've clearly been in the game a long time. I thank you very much for all you're doing. Uh, it's going to be an exciting year for you, clearing the deck, transitioning to, to multifamilies, Tucker. And I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on my show or on your show. And uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, buddy.